This is the Ordinary Christian Podcast, a podcast dedicated to real people like you seeking to live out your Christian faith in the ordinary aspects of everyday life. My name is Craig Thompson, and I'm your host for this podcast. I'm a husband, father, pastor, and writer. I hope that this podcast will help you to use the margins of your everyday life to live more intentionally for Jesus. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of the Ordinary Christian Podcast. Today on this episode of the podcast, I have with me David Sachs. David is a best-selling author, uh, reporter, uh, keynote speaker. Uh, he is also a man with family and um, uh, varied interests across the, the sphere of his writing. Today, we're going to be talk- talking primarily about his book, The Future is Analog, and a previous book, The Revenge of Analog. But David Sachs, thank you for being with us on the Ordinary Christian Podcast, and welcome. My pleasure, Craig. David, um, you know, a little bit about you that uh, that I know from your books is uh, sort of your writing background and your professional background, but I know you also have a family. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you personally beyond just the uh, the nuts and bolts of what you do for a living? Sure, of course. I'm... Um... Uh, not ordinary Christian. I'm an ordinary Jewish Canadian. I guess you can say that as ordinary as I can be in this world. Uh, I got two kids, young kids, um, a wife, um, you know, sibling family live close to them here in the city. And, um, uh, everybody gets along most of the time. That's what matters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like to spend my free time biking, skiing, surfing on a lake, which is not something I would recommend to anybody who lives near an ocean. But if you live yep. on a lake and you can get some waves, go for it. I've read uh, your book talking about the surfing on the on the lake. And I'll be honest, you're the worst salesman for that on planet Earth. Yeah, no, it's a terrible idea. Um, it's like skiing in South Carolina. I mean, I, yeah, you know, right, I can't imagine. Right. Maybe, I know you can ski in parts North of North Carolina. Virginia. Yeah. You can ski oh yeah. In North really? Carolina. North Carolina. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In the so, mountains. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Right. It's, uh, you know, we, we seek out, uh, whatever we can get where we, uh, where we live. Yeah. So David, the reason I've, I've asked you to come on and I really appreciate you being one to do this. Um, like I said, you and I are two pretty different humans outside of uh, both being white. That's probably one of the few things we have in common. Um, I, I would imagine ideologically you and I are pretty different. Obviously we're even two different uh, r- r- religious convictions, um, but I have found a great deal of unity with you and to the two of your books that I've read. Uh, the first being a book you wrote, um, the revenge of analog was, was that, I didn't even look at the copyright now. Was that six or eight years ago? Uh, yeah. 2016. 2016. And then most recently you wrote a book called the future is analog. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you give us sort of the 30,000 foot view of, uh, of the the connection between those books and maybe what brought about the the creation of those two books? Yeah. Uh, You know, revenge of analog was really chronicling a emerging trend at the time when I started writing it, which was probably back in 2014, 2013. Um, And it was really, you know, trying to take stock of this thing I noticed, which is that as the digital technology we use today was sort of coming into its own, as smartphones um, were really becoming something that everybody in the world had, as um, we were able to stream music and and video and 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 get you know ebooks and and all these analog goods were sort of predicted to disappear, whether it was physical stores or books or records. You actually had the opposite happening. You had the growth suddenly of 
all these non-digital technologies, um, goods, or let's say spaces and services, uh, that um, that really took a lot of people by surprise. You had the growth of vinyl records again, or or books and bookstores, um, or film cameras, right? Uh, and this trend, you know, continued. I just met someone yesterday who's starting a cassette tape business. What? Um, he left his job. To How do old this. is this guy? He's, you know, in his in his early 30s, late 20s. So he didn't actually live through cassette tapes. No, maybe he got Which is tape. why he wants to do it, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, and so and so that book really sort of chronicled um the people in, in the company sort of doing that and 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 asked those bigger questions about why it was happening. And in the years since that came out, um I kept getting asked about, well, yeah, this was happening and vinyl records are here or, you know, oh, you wrote about paper notebooks, but surely, you know, what's the future for this? Because maybe this is just something that people are nostalgic about and there can't really be any long-term future as computers get better and, and digital becomes more prevalent in our lives. And I would always do this when I would do podcasts or go and give talks or, you know, work with companies asking about the sort of long-term trends. What was the future of, of, you know, this analog trend. And I was sort of thinking about that and, and starting to do some writing on it um, around 2020 when the pandemic hit and, and all of a sudden we were all sort of, um, you know, sent home and and really only had digital to, to, you know, work, go to school, go to church, do everything by basically, right? Everything happened through our screen. And so this, this promised digital future that the people who had been kind of criticizing what I was saying um, had finally arrived. Everybody in the world was doing this, at least for a period of you know a couple of weeks or months. Um, uh, everybody was sort of doing everything through a screen and uh, and and living almost exclusively digitally. And so we really saw the full extent of what that would look like in our lives. And it it made us not only question the value of digital, the place of digital in different parts of our lives, but uh, really, more importantly, made us see the value of analog, the the spaces, the relationships um, that are sort of physical, in person, um, in all these different parts of our lives that um, perhaps we didn't even think about before, right? Because we never had to question their their existence, and suddenly we were doing that. And so, this book's a reflection on that and and, and I, what we I, learned from it. I think that one of the things you did in the Revenge of Analog that is helpful for the conversation um, in, in both books and for ours right now is that you gave a bit of a, of a definition of analog because I, th I think that's helpful when people hear that. What what, mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? What do we mm -hmm. mean in this conversation? You said analog in the broadest sense of the term and the one I've grounded this book in is the opposite of digital. Digital is the language of computers, the binary code of ones and zeros, which endless combinations allow computer hardware and software to communicate and calculate um, analog is the yin to digital's yang. Uh, it doesn't require a computer to function. And most often analog exists in the physical world as opposed to the virtual one. So as we're talking about that, you're, you're really primarily focusing, not necessarily on the, 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 the technological aspect of something being analog as much as on the reality that the analog things we're talking about, the things that we can touch, that we could taste, that we could experience, you know, that we could smell and, and, and have tactile engagements with. Is yes. that fair? Yes, I, I, I think I think uh, exactly right. In, in the first book, it, because the first book focused a lot on objects, um, it was really much grounded in that notion of an object. Okay, the 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 you know Spotify account, the MP3, that is the digital, and mm -hmm. the physical record 
the the LP record, the piece of plastic with wavelengths in it, that's analog. Um, but what we were experiencing during the pandemic and 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 the sort of bigger question that we're now wrestling with around the future is something like, is the is work something that takes place in an office with other humans around it in a building with desks and these things, or is it something that exclusively happens? on your laptop, wherever your laptop is. Um, and so it's, it, it, it really broadens out to a much wider, wider set of things than just, you know, specific objects. And, and I think that, and, 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 and for me, again, as, as a, as a Christian and uh, you and I at least share a commitment to the old Testament um, or, you know, as, as, as a Christian and as, as an understanding of, or with an understanding of, of a theology of work, mm-hmm. so we just talk about work that God created us to work. Uh, and that work had an intention of being fulfilling and experiential. That it was to be building up something, right? It was it was a a part of the exercise of dominion over the world. And that exercise that God gave Adam any responsibility for precedes the fall, precedes the entrance of sin into the world. The expectation is that work was a good thing to be done. And I do think that one of the things, just if we can jump just a little bit ahead, as you talked about work. Um, in a digital aspect, we tend to think about work as just tasks to be accomplished, not necessarily callings to be fulfilled and experiences to encounter. And one of the things that just with the work aspect in in, in the middle of the pandemic, you know, work, you know, became keystrokes as opposed to to relationships and to, to a, a, an actual vision or a goal of making the world better. Is that is that fair, do you think? Um, I mean, I think some, some situations it, anyway. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's a very complicated subject. And I think that's why for most of the other areas of our lives where we were sort of living digitally during those those months of the spring of 2020, shopping, um, uh, you know, ch- attending church services online, uh, exercise classes in your living room, right? For almost 90% of those, ni- 95, you know, more, right? Unless someone has a health problem or mo- mobility issue or they're they're disconnected from a certain community, like they've gone back to the analog version of it. Work is the tricky one. You see every company, every government, every sort of organization agency is still struggling with this question of, are we remote? Are we not? Do we go back to the office? Do we not? Do we save money from not renting the office? Do do we do two days a week? Do we do five days a week? Do we do three? Do you do like- But what what we are seeing though, is that in those, especially in those creative roles, right? Mm-hmm. There's this realization that creativity is taking a hiatus when people are not interacting. Yeah. Th- there's a cost to it. Um, and the cost is a different cost than um, the financial cost. The financial cost of renting an office space in Columbia, South Carolina or Toronto, right? Is, you know, this is the price per square foot. Here's here's the cost of furniture. Here's the cost of servicing it. Here's how much it costs to like have someone vacuum it every day and take care of the bathrooms and you know cater it and and keep the lights on and whatever, right? And the cost uh, of moving these things online is 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 X. But what what I think we realized and we're we're still struggling with and realizing is is that deeper thing that you alluded to, which is what is the unseen um, and uncalculable in many ways value of work when it happens in in the physical analog world right whether it's uh you know people at the at a at a church working together in the church office and the day-to-day operation of of you know a, a religious organization whether it's a, a a government organization whether it's a a corporate Thing, whether it's a nonprofit, whatever it is, what is the 
value of those things that happen, which are not the keystrokes, because let's face it, a lot of the time, probably most of the time you're sitting there in your office, which it looks like a very nice office from what I can see on the zoom screen. It's excellent. Thanks. And you're, you're, you're keystroking in things. You're keystroking in, you know, holy things. You're keystroking in boring things about janitorial services. Cause you know, still like that's, that's a big thing, right? How much Kleenex do you have to buy for, for the Sunday service or whatever? What's the, you know, manger budget this year? I don't know. Um, uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you know, you're, you're on Microsoft Excel. You're doing these things. Like everybody's probably sitting there on a computer. You're not chipping away things right. in stone tablets. Um, and you and I are having this conversation digitally. Yes, of course. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, the, that is the work quote unquote, but so much of the other stuff that happens that you don't see are these conversations, these relationships, these interactions. Um, uh, there's something that, that I wrote about in the book called embodied cognition. And that is, um, this gentleman, Andres Hofbrauer, who studies organizational behavior, he looked at architects in New York City uh, at a studio and 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 found that their understanding of, of a project they were doing was often just based on the passive information they got from their physical surroundings, walking by other people's desks, seeing pictures, seeing models, snippets of conversation at the elevator or on the way out to lunch or, or whatever that actually built a greater body of knowledge about, let's say, a skyscraper they were building or, um, or you know, a school they were designing somewhere um, because the information flowed in this very real world tactile social way. And so all those things, plus of course, the human relationships that bind it all together provides this other unseen value to work that I think is what we're we're getting at, right? Because someone could say, look, I I work as a designer, right? I work from my house. I do work that's fulfilling. I do work that's good. Perhaps I've worked designing some you know, website for a church or a missionary organization or um, some other cause that makes them feel particularly good. Like I do my work, I'm very happy, I'm, I'm at home, whatever. Like it's not to dis discount the value of the work that people may do remotely, but, um, but I think there's something bigger there when that work is done with other people, even if it's for a conference or a meeting or something. And like I that. should clarify that when I, I was talking mostly about the the value of the work, I, I guess for me, I'm thinking more along the lines of not the way that you as the employee would experience the value of hmm. working remotely as much as how perhaps an employer or um, a business owner may only see that employee as a list of keystrokes. And the only value they identify right. from them is what they can get. How much money can they save by keeping them yeah. locked up and, in their house versus and how there much is, they experience. And, and so what we've seen over the past three years is, um, is this growth of, you know, surveillance technology that kind of takes that to the nth degree that, that um, is, you know, counting remote worker product productivity by keystrokes, literally. Yeah, like I have right, a friend yeah. who works for a, a big French company, engineering company um, here in Toronto, and they're, they make signaling systems for subways and, and train things. So they, you know, they do the computer signals for big transit systems and, um, and, and they do a lot of remote work. Uh, and he said, yeah, they, they initiate this keystroke thing to see how active you are on your computer. Oh, you know, Craig, uh, you know, you're working. I know we saw that between the hours of, you know, 1230 and, and 2.30, like you had 60% less keystrokes. He said what people have actually done is order from Amazon, like the, like some modern equivalent of like those silly little drinking birds from the seventies that will, 
shake their mouse or like tap on the keypad to give the illusion of productivity. And, and I think what this calls into question is this bigger question of like, if we're still measuring productivity, like it's some 19th century widget factory for an economy or jobs that are mostly based on information, um, we have a bigger question that that we're not solving for. Right. We're, we're seeing, uh, I read an article, I think it was local, uh, but I read an article recently where um, college university students are, are being, in some situations, basically forced to put particular kinds of monitoring software on their computers so that they can proctor exams. And, and, and it's it's interesting because they're being forced to either put this monitoring software that is incredibly invasive. I mean, it's it's a really invasive software that is tracking everything all the way down to not just keystrokes, but, uh, you know, accesses your camera and can track eye movements and things of this nature. Um, so they either have to install this on their computer or they're paying something like 40 bucks an exam to have them proctored by human proctors, right? They're actually having to pay for, uh, you know, in our conversation here, an analog experience to avoid this uh, this incredibly invasive technology. And it's, you know, it's, it's a bit dehumanizing, to be totally honest, when when we get to a space where, you know, our, our lack of trust is such that we're going to spy on you as opposed to giving you a human being that can can engage in that. Um, but uh, that's that's a whole other issue. We won't get into the, to that. Uh, you in the Revenge of Analog, as I was looking back at some of this to prepare, you talked about things like the revenge of school and the revenge of work. Did anybody, has anybody called you a prophet? Because, I mean, you you looked at this and you said digital school is a really terrible idea. And then, of course, we have digital school and then you've got to at some point be coming back going, yep, told you digital school was maybe not exactly where we need to be. So. I mean, nobody's called me a prophet. Um, and uh, thank well, you. I will. There we go. Let me just. Oh, just, wow. There you go. Welcome. Wow. So, so all those yeah. years of. Of, uh, <laughs> I mean, I know you're a Southern Baptist, but I didn't. Know. Southern I Baptist, we get crazy. That. I was no idea. We're not everything you think we are. Just so you know, just some crazy. I wasn't uncles. expecting to be crowned um, anything uh, other than a wonderful <laughs> guest. Um, uh, we're joking. We're joking. But mm-hmm. um, uh, no, I, I mean, I think for me it was just obvious, right? I had, I had done. Me too, for the record. Like I, yeah. I, I, when I read your first book, I was like, yes, yes. Of course. Right. Um, and I think, um, and, and so I had done research on this and and not only had I done research, I'd spoken to people who'd done research around the world. The, the data was clear and fairly unanimous and from all sorts of different countries at all different income levels at all different school levels, you know, virtual learning in various shapes and forms had been tried by the brightest minds and the best schools in all sorts of different ways in different generations with different technologies. And it always had negative results. Um, uh, and it was always for the same reason. So when we attempted this on a global scale, except for some kids in New Zealand for a couple months, um, you know, it was a unsurprising failure. Uh, and, um, and what's amazing to me is that people still hold out that messianic belief that if we just get the technology right. So I was uh, responded to a, a, a woman who's a writer um, whose name I'm blanking on, but she she wrote a, a wonderful uh, blog post on her blog that focuses on the sort of intersection of technology. Um, and she talked about how uh, she read my book and she really enjoyed it and it was thoughtful, but the part she disagreed with was 
on this part about education. She said, because I was speaking with my friend who's in the technology business and in the San Francisco area. And she was saying that, you know, in the future, digital is going to allow us to have these experiences where everybody's going to be able to get the best education possible, totally personalized. Um, and we don't need to go to school. And then they'll do the extracurricular activities for the social part. And I was like, we tried this. Like, have we learned nothing? There's a reason why this didn't work for the vast majority of students. There's always exceptions, but the exceptions are, you know, we're talking less than 10%. And the reason is, is, is the thing that we realized when our kids were at home, you know, learning from screens um, uh, and not with their friends in a class. And we think back to what we did when we went to school, wherever we went to school, you know, whether it was like a one room treehouse in Uganda or, you know, Harvard, it's like, what do you remember about school? You don't remember the things you learned. You remember the people you learned with. You remember the setting. And that allows for learning those things. That's the that's the core truth of what education is. It's a relationship. It's the reason why you have Sunday school, right? It's not like here and now just take this Bible and learn at home or, you know, read these books at home or we'll show you these videos. It's it's that social component that is the same across any educational experience. Um, uh, and it's inseparable. It's inseparable from that educational experience is the is the social, is the community, is the relational component, the relationship between the student and their teacher, the relationship with students and each other, the relationships with the school and the greater community. You uh, referenced a book in um, in your second book, The Future's Analog, um, by I think his last name is Wright, Justin Wright, Failure Disrupt. Did mm -hmm. you interview him or did you just reference his book? I don't recall. Yes, I did. I did interview Justin. Excellent book. I actually, man, I appreciated that recommendation because I I, I found it on Audible and listened to, oh, cool. to the Audible version. But but I mean, that which brings kind of back around to the, the sort of digital learning experience. There's, there's great things that we can experience with the digital. So I can consume more books and more information, for instance, when I have an Audible account and I can listen to it going down the road. The problem is I, I'm, I'm, I can't really reach out to Justin Reich and engage with him in this kind of podcast conversation because I can't go back and look at the book that I, that I just read with him. You know, it's I, I still have some memory of it. And in some ways, we had sort of a one sided conversation about it. Yeah, but there was no there's not the kind of relationship that I have um, in wrestling through a book that I can write down in that I can dog ear the pages on which i rarely do but yours got some i just want you to know like, some you, dogs you, you made the level you, That's made, good. you made it but uh, right. uh, but you know that the the education aspect and this is hey this is passionate for me i we have tons of kids here in our church we're very blessed uh lots and lots of kids under 18 and i have four moan and in public schools and so you know we're we're constantly sort of wrestling with this balance between digital technology and, you know, sort of a one-to-one -one computing experience, which every district wants to do because they don't want to be left behind. Right. I mean, right. It, it, that is, it's, it's an, but it's, but, but the left behind thing. Okay. So this is where it gets into this, this difference between the sort of image of innovation and the reality of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think this is what we owe it to ourselves to do. I, I, I said, you know, thinking critically about, about the use of digital technology in the future, because I think what we've what we've seen, especially um, from political leaders of every, you know, every party, every 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 spectrum, um, is this fear that they're going to be left behind. Right? They see um, those businesses using digital technology. They see the wealth that they've created. They look upon you know the power that they they have increasingly um, in in 
you know, uh, culture and politics and in, in, in economics. And they say, we, this is what we need. We need, we need to be the innovators. Um, well, what does that lead to? It leads to school boards saying, well, okay, what does that look like? And the com computer companies come to them and they're like, yeah, uh, just buy tablets for every kid in your district. And they're right. like, oh, great. Yeah, we're innovative. And, and so they do it. And, and there's tons of examples. Um, I think it was uh, close to you. Uh, Durham um, did it with one laptop pretty much for every student. Um, uh, you know, Los Angeles Duke, Duke did that that research on that, right? I, I, I mean, I looked, I didn't do the research, I, but I, I, you know, I read, Duke, I read the university. Report. I think it was UNC. Was it UNC? I, I've, um, I've read that research. I've read that. Yeah. That, uh, is it, is it, um, this yeah. was a couple of years ago. This was like in the yeah. past 10 years. Uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. And all it does is L widen the gap, right? It I widens mean, the gap between yeah. those who are, those who are, you know, have resources and those who don't. And, and it also just leads to a ton of cost and a lot of problems with, you know, the computer doesn't, it doesn't do anything to improve the learning. Right? And, and that's, that's what I think that, you know, we saw this with the pandemic, um, the kids who had access to, and, and, and the reality is it wasn't just resources. Like everybody wants to talk resource, resource, the, yeah. the, the best resource that kids had access to that helped them to thrive during the pandemic was a stable family situation, a good home with parents that could invest in them. I mean, period. And like yeah. And, and when we say parents that can invest in them, we're talking about parents who had time, time. One of them not working or a flexible work schedule to sit there with kids and help them learn. Because the the fantasy was like, every kid will get a screen. We'll put the kids in front of the screen and the teachers will be there. And the kid, these kids love screens. They've grown up. You know, look at the Minecraft they play. Look at the, look at the yeah. Nintendo switching they do, right? This is going to be it. It's going to be like education, but Minecraft style. And the kids are like... Oh, uh, after two, you know, an hour, they're like uh, jumping all over the place, and you know, we're talking about kindergartners to university students, right? Like, to yeah, Denrock oh yeah, or whatever. Um, uh, and and who are the parents that weren't able to do that? The parents that are able to do that are people that don't live in large houses with extra bedrooms and room for a second office that didn't have the resources to buy or or get those laptops or the internet plans that did. The ones who work jobs that weren't able to go remote, which is still like. 80% of the jobs in the economy, the people who are working on road crews, the people who are police, the people who are firemen, the people who are doctors, the people who are, are working in the factories, the grocery stores, the farms that are that are making the food that we were sort of able to deliver, right? Like those people, they didn't have that opportunity to be able to support their kids. They didn't have the resources, they didn't have the time. And of course, you know, if you look at the demographics of who that is, it's the same demographics of the same people that are falling behind in every sort of element of society. Um, and so this promise of the technology being at this great equalizer, all it did was widen the gaps of of those who who usually get ahead and those who usually get left behind. Um, and, and so it doesn't mean that digital technology, digital tools are um, an inherently negative thing for for learning um, and for school. It just means that they are not a blanket solution and that they come with as many potential drawbacks as they do with potential um, potential benefits. And we owe it to ourselves to rigorously look at what worked, what what was helpful with that. Where did the where did the digital technology really? provide certain benefits um in the educational system in in those years and where was it just you know negative right I, I thought that was interesting I don't remember if it was you or if it was Reich's book they talked about um 
the the one of the great ways that there was some some advance in digital technology didn't have anything to do with a one to one computing experience. I think it was especially among elementary children, but it was with a three to one where the kids yes. had access to a computer. Uh, that was that was Michael was that Rich, you? who's no uh, Michael Rich. Uh, that was uh, when I saw it in Michael Rich, who's um he basically runs the center at Harvard and Boston Children's Hospital that looks at you know the 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 health effects of digital media on on children mm-hmm. um and and he said you know that the idea a couple of years ago was like every kid needs their own device one to one but what one to one does is isolates children and it removes that social element of learning but when two kids share a computer in a school they need to co-op, they need to work together. So I'll give you an example, right? My daughter, ten, uh, turning 10 in a few weeks, um, she has to do a project about Canadian geography. And she has to do it with another kid named Josh in her class. And Josh is not the best student. That's fine. I'm sure he'll do great in life, but you know he's not an academic kid. And she's complaining how Josh doesn't do this and Josh doesn't do that. And she has to go to a doctor's appointment today and she has to finish the project and basically glue stuff to Bristol board. And, you know, Josh, you know, how can I, you know, I I can't do it because Josh is going to do it. It's like, well, it's your, your job to work with Josh and, and somehow get Josh to help you do the work. Like I'm like the assignment isn't learning about Canadian rock formations. The assignment is learning how to work together with another person. Cause when you go out in the world, that's what work is, right? It's, it's the task you have to do, but it's also learning how to work with other people. This is where you can put in a beautiful biblical parable about, um, uh, you know, working with others, which I'm, we can, if you did not to. pay attention to synagogue this week. So you got to do better. We, you know, I'll, I'll try and keep it. <laughs> Old Testament. Corinthians eight. Um, well, but back to the 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 one to one computing, and, and this isn't just one to one computing. And I got to be careful because, like the hobby horse, I can ride over and over and over again. And people that that know me, people that know this podcast, know that I got you know I can I just I just had a uh, I just last week interviewed a guy. Um, he's re- recently written a book called The Wolf in Their Pockets about the danger that social internet can can create, and especially as it as it's so connected with our phone. So I got, I don't mm-hmm. want to ride this hobby horse for too long. But one of the things that one to one, one on one, whether ooh, sorry, um, whether that be you know computing in the school or putting a, a two year old in front of an iPad, mm-hmm. one of the things that it does is it creates a scenario where that child and and then even we as adults become the god of our own little bitty universe, and that device obeys everything I tell it to do. And when I tell it to switch, it switches. When I tell it to turn on, it turns on or turns off or it turns up or it turns down or we, we move to different apps. Or, and it does everything I say. And it is actually 100% antisocial because I become so singularly focused in this universe where it 100% revolves around my wishes and my desires as opposed to the social world where David Sachs and I have to have a conversation and you know even even in this conversation you and I still have to navigate subconsciously or consciously navigate carefully around exactly how we're going to go because we recognize the differing worldviews that we have and you and I if, if we're not purposeful we could devolve into you know a debate that nobody's going to benefit from right, right? and I mean, if this was a reality. conversation that was happening on twitter we would be Right. Be, yeah, it would have devolved. No, it would. The garden no, would have, have fallen. You, but uh, right? yeah. I mean, but. Um. But but and I think you're right. Right. It's that the that notion of sort of self reinforcement. The notion of um a certain kind of instant gratification mm-hmm. that digital 
is its great benefit. I mean, it's it, it. But but if that's all we have, then it it leads to a certain kind of decadence. Um, there's a wonderful gentleman I spoke to for the book, uh, Michael Sakakis, who studies technology and um and I guess religion at um Florida State University and writes sort of on the intersection of of both of them um uh and and you know he's 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 a Christian um and, and we had really interesting a really interesting conversation about it and and you know he said that we're living in a time of this you can order toilet you know paper sitting on the toilet at three in the morning like there's no there's no which it's if just you're a vision situ- i have if you're it's in like, that oh, situation no, three in the morning. you're in that situation perhaps it's been there i think he was saying you can order shoes or something at the toilet three in the morning. <laughs> but <clears throat> um uh you know there is there is this sort of limitless decadence that um, is given to us with these incredibly powerful tools and and connections that they have. Um, and, and in many ways, that's, that's wonderful. You can go and, you know, listen to any sermon from any um, church anywhere in the world. I can watch ski movies from any country and any skier that, you know, has a GoPro cam on their helmet. Um, you know, any book I want, any, whatever, like it's the limitlessness of it uh, is, is its great benefit. But I think there is, as you said, if you get into the thing where you, you don't have limits, whether it's through whether it's your ideas or whether it's what you're able to sort of do, um, it, it's liberating in one sense, but it's it's very restricting in another. And I think that's the bigger sort of question that that you're getting at that the hobby horse that you're um, riding on or beating a dead. I, I sorry, the metaphor well, got mixed it, up. I, we, I can beat the dead horse over and over. That's what there you I go. Said. Yeah, that's what it's it is. Apparently okay. not a Canadian idiom, but. Um, <laughs> We treat our horses. Our horses have the best healthcare in the world. No, so I I taught <laughs> I taught I taught some uh, ministry students in Latvia, okay, um, back in January, and I believe that I used that exact idiom, and they, they, the translator tried to <laughs> translate it, and oh, they looked at me like I had six heads, and I I realized when I said it, I was like, oh man, this is why are you beating horse, right? Yeah. <laughs> Of Let's just go outside and do a sauna. I have no idea yeah. what's happening, but uh, um, amen. That's your, amen to that. That yeah. is one area where you and I will agree. Well, brother, we can talk about Latvian sauna at any yes. point in time. Like that was yes. I, this my second trip to Latvia, my first sauna experience. And you want to talk about an analog, tactile, full body experience? That was it. Listen, right? I, mean, I mean, I am. You will find no greater devotee of saunas outside the former Soviet um well, union i did as, as this man here but i mean i did sauna in basically a former soviet sauna camp right I yes mean, this is where we did it this big wood-fired sauna i'll i'll send you a video when yeah. we finish right it's and it, it, it's uh it's incredible i don't yeah. need to see video you sonning but um no i, I, I mean, I'm, I mean it's not that bad i'm just saying like <laughs> you know you go from the the wood-fired sauna to 180 degrees and then you the take a plunge. dip in an yeah. In in the icy you know river, it's incredible. Oh man, not I mean they, they well, had and the, and what is it about that experience? Right, everything. Right, this is a beautiful everything. transition. Right, is is for all the things that we could do in this world, for all the things that we can access and watch and and see and order and have delivered to us. Like one of the biggest trends that I've seen in um, kind of contemporary urban culture in the past couple of years or just culture is like the, this, this growth of interest in saunas as a sort of form of personal wellness is huge. And there's people like, I, I used to go to these 
you know, Russian Ukrainian saunas in New York and, 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 uh, here in Toronto, uh, they're always in the suburb in some strip mall. And, you know, it's like, they have like five different rooms of different times of heat and the cold plunge. And then so you that, go and eat a bunch of food. Not and some exactly vodka. what I experienced. This is not it's, a strip mall. Okay. You get the, this is the Toronto suburban equivalent. Okay. I'm just telling who move, you. Right, that's yeah. Like, there's but I have friends who've blowing the, water and snow. And, yeah. Too. So it's the same thing as a suburban strip mall next to a tile store. Um, uh, but, you know, what is it about that experience, right? It's, it is such an intense, physical, undistilled, real world experience that the, the, the feeling you get from that is, um, is irreplicable in some sort of and, virtual. And yet, and, and then, I mean, we can really transition to some other things I want to talk about here with all of this, because it, it, it also in, in that that European context, I don't know what it looks like in a Toronto strip mall, um, but Happy it up. is intensely and intentionally relational. Yes, right. So this isn't just like, hey, me and I just went and did a sauna. It was a you know the 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 friend of mine that hosted us over there. You know, we went with several men from and and boys from his church. And, you know, they've got like full charcuterie out there and you're rotating in and out of the sauna and into the cold plunge. They got the, you know, the, the cold bath in the space, but also again, you just walk right out the door into the snow. You got the hat, you wear the felt hat. Man, I didn't, I don't need that. I'm from South Carolina. I don't need the hat, man. I'm good. You need the hat. It just didn't seem, it didn't feel right. The hat protects your head. From what? What do I need to be protected? From the heat. No, no, no. Look here. So I'm in Latvia. It's gray and wet. It was like a, a heat wave in in Odyssey or in Riga. So it was, you know, 33 degrees or something. Uh, it's horribly gross. Uh, and I step into this sauna and it's 100. And I, I think it was 180 degrees legitimately. And uh, they, they, hey, well, well, welcome. I mean, how how is this for you? I said, brother, this is welcome to South Carolina. Like in this the summer, is, I am, August. This and, is yeah. not an issue for me. This is my truck every time I get into it in August. Um, this is my world, but uh, anyway, we, we've taken a detour. But but it, it, it's intentionally and intensely relational, right? And that's that's the 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 experience. There is, I, I I can send you the video, and you can watch me, you know, lose my breath as I go into this river and um and hear us all laugh and all that other stuff. But like you said, you don't you you don't you don't lose your own breath in that moment you know you're not the guy that's having to wrestle with the decision whether or not you're going to climb down into this icy river or not and wrestle with you know the the, the i mean you you would have no issues with your, your surfing i wear a wetsuit when i do that i mean it's, it, no I it's know, i've man. done like it's that that but, description of 50 mile an hour winds below yeah, zero temperatures but I you mean, know what and this is this is you know this little I, I want to stay on this, not just because of the love of saunas, but it does bring us back to this, this core thing, right? Which is, and we'll, we'll talk, you know, let's talk about spirituality and religion. Like there are many cultures, mm-hmm. um, indigenous cultures here in, in North, North and South America um, and, and across the world that, that use saunas, sweat lodges as, as part of their rituals, right? Um, it is, you know, an, an intensely sort of sacred space to go in and have that transformational feeling of, of heat um, as part of the spiritual journey that that many people um, and many other cultures and 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 belief systems have have done throughout time um and I think we think about that like there are so many religious and spiritual rituals that that are tied into these physical experiences and and this gets to this sort of 
core of of one of the things that we realized, whether it was you know in in the, in the spiritual religious context or sort of the bigger context of other things, which is like we are still these physical creatures in the world, right? We are still we still have bodies. We still walk on the earth. Um, uh, and we cannot separate our minds or our spirits from the fact of that inherent truth. And so, you know, th- this gets back to like people doing virtual church services or whatever. Like you can hear, sit there, you can hear the liturgy, you can listen to your sermon, you can stand up and sing the songs, but it's a very different experience from standing in a church or synagogue or a mosque, um, and getting that same experience with other people. It- um, uh, that the physicality of of life is like a, an inherent truth that we can't just invent away because it's and, convenient. And David, there were there really only there were two primary impetuses for me. Is that impetuses? Impetus. Sure. We'll go with that. Two Impetus. reasons primarily why I wanted to have this conversation with you. One of them has to do with some relationships that we'll talk about in just a minute before we finish. But the other one was to get to this this religious aspect, right? Um, your, your, your background is Jewish and, and I would, in a Jewish background, you don't have as much of a separation, sort of an idea of a separation between sort of money, mind, body, spirit, um, in, 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 in my understanding of most Judaism, you know, it's sort of a unified concept. We're all, I mean, you, like, like satyrs are so incredibly tactile and experiential, you know, it it is, I guess, I mean, I, I, you know. I took like one religion course in university, didn't grade on it. Um, but my understanding is, you know, in the Christian context, it's probably a lot closer to Catholicism in um, the physicality of many rituals, right? Right. The, and that's the presence, you know, the, the most important thing in Jewish religious law um, is this concept of a minion, which is a minimum number of people, 10, uh, 10 men in the traditional setting and, and more modern settings, 10, 10 people, 10 adults. Um, you need 10 people as a minimum to conduct any sort of service or ritual too. So to say when someone in your family dies and you're sitting Shiva, the morning period for your week, every night when you're doing the prayers, you need 10 people. Right, you need ten people to do to have a wedding. You need ten people to. You need that physical presence of ten, and, um, and that sort of expands itself across. For the, the folks that are listening, to this they're yeah. part of our church. Actually, we, we made reference to this in a sermon recently because yeah. as Paul would go into new cities and he would he would minister and 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 speak to them about the Messiah. You know, he's starting in the synagogues, um, and in some places there was no synagogue. And the reason there was no synagogue is because there weren't ten men. Ten Jewish men to form the synagogue. So there's this, and in Catholicism, you still have, and 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 even in um, in Orthodoxy, you still have a lot of emphasis upon sort of the old language of the smells and bells, right? You've got all those tactile experiences. Well, in in the Protestant Church, you know, so much of that gets jettisoned in in the Reformation, and I believe for good reason. Um, I wouldn't be a a Baptist otherwise, right? But um, so I'm, I'm a Baptist, you know, through and through, but so I believe there's really good reason for jettisoning much of that, because I believe that it really can fall into a form of idolatry that we've got to be careful that we don't cling to. Um, 
but then we go too far sometimes in Protestantism where we focus so much on the spirit or the soul, right? Sort of the some weird idea that uh, you can almost get into an antinomianism. You familiar with that term, anti-law? No. So, so the idea that great God's grace is so big, it doesn't really matter what we do that 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 uh, with our body, our soul could somehow be cleansed, right? Mm-hmm. And so, this is where I, I mean, just to be totally honest, this is where I think we sometimes can get some of the disconnect between evangelicals and sort of the the politics get wrapped up in it. The idea that I've, I've got this spiritual purity that I'm seeking after mm-hmm. and that uh, in, in an effort to achieve this spiritual purity, I don't necessarily have to, to, to focus so much on the, the things that happen in this world because I'm just right. living for the next one kind of idea. Yeah. Uh, All will be forgiven in the afterlife. <laughs> yeah. So however we have to get there is fine, right? Because my, my goals yes. are, are somehow yeah. holy and, and righteous. Yeah. Well, many I, people in prison. With that right. Oh, yeah. So, but it, it created this uh, this little soup, uh, I think, for mm-hmm. a lot of us walking into a pandemic. If you weren't careful, if you'd never thought through this, the idea, especially in Protestantism, mm-hmm. okay, and, and in other areas as well, but especially that really and truly we could just flip the switch. I mean, we'd all seen Billy Graham on TV and everything worked out just fine. That you right. could flip the switch digitally and everything will be okay. Yes. And you know, we we're we're blessed as a church body to have good technology. We've got you know decent cameras and we still had some things we had to wrestle through because I'm I'm a, a, a laggard in some of these things. And because I, I recognized early on, for lack for better or worse, that video church was never going to be good enough, right? That we, so we we didn't even we didn't do video broadcasts of our of our worship services until we kind of had to with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and we went completely online for four weeks. Uh, 100% online and um, leading up to Easter. And we we arranged to do worship in our parking lot and sort of on our lawns here. And I'll never forget it. So Easter of 2020. So we, Camden, South Carolina was actually the epicenter of of COVID, early COVID in, in sort of the Southern part of the, South, of the United States. So oh, we, interesting. Yeah, early on. So it's, it's in New York, it's in Washington state and it was in Camden, South Carolina. And so we actually shut down uh, about a week before the rest of the country did our, our local government, uh, you know, they, they didn't impose anything. Hey, would you, we, we believe it'd be wise. And we did, we went online. Uh, anyway, four weeks later, we gather in our parking lot and I'll never forget it. People wept as they pulled into the parking lot, sat in the, the bed of a truck or in a lawn chair, just to be able to look across at, at somebody else and to worship with them. And they just wept. And in that moment, like I, my commitment to our church in that moment was that we would find a way to do these things in person and to do everything we could to be wise about it. And so we were a full year on, online um, in the parking lot and in person. And so we, we, we created a situation where people could worship simultaneously in ways that were, you know, that they felt most comfortable doing, but we prioritized that in-person experience mm-hmm. um, because there was just no other way to do it well, right? We needed to encounter and experience others as we're trying to experience the living God. We've got to experience these people that are created in His image. Uh, yeah, Amen. Um, uh, you know, this this is similar to my the experience that I had. I mean, it was I I, I attended virtual, you name it, religious life cycle things, weddings, bar mitzvahs, um, baby Wouldn't virtual weddings the worst? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, you didn't have to send as big of a gift, but. Um... Well, but I, I, officiated, <laughs> I officiated one and yeah. it was heartbreaking. 
Yeah. It was heartbreaking. Uh, luckily, the virtual wedding that I attended, they then had the real one two years later, and I got to go to it last summer in Massachusetts, which was wonderful. But, um, you know, it, it was you you realize instantly in doing these things yes there's a convenience you know you know to put on uncomfortable pants you know to get up you know to you know it's you have to wear pants if you didn't want to didn't even have to wear pants right um uh and and yet you know when it was that first jewish high holiday and i had the option of i i was watching sort of the the online service which was really well produced and put together and it was interesting or whatever like my neighbor's like, oh, I'm going to some service in a park. It's much more orthodox and traditional than than I would have done. The whole service was in Hebrew. Like I was sitting there just kind of lost most of the time. But for the songs that I knew, just sitting in this park outside in Toronto, wearing a mask in the sun in chairs that are like spaced six feet apart. Like it was one of the most memorable, beautiful moments of my, you know, Jewish life. And I and I and I won't forget that. And I still don't, because it's in that moment. And and again, it's like only I believe it's the great Canadian prophet Joni Mitchell who's like you don't know what you got till it's gone. Um, uh, <clears throat> who 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 it it I'm sure there's a better biblical version of that, but um, but it is it was in the in the loss of of these things which perhaps we took for granted, right? Perhaps we just took the everyday availability of something like church or synagogue or mosque or temple to for granted it was like oh yeah the physical thing sure and he's like well we can do the the non-physical version of it and and you know the songs will be the same and the liturgy will be the same and it's the same bible passage or whatever and you're like oh wait i've experienced this now i i can clearly see the difference in one or the other and in my life you know i can reflect on which one has that that value to me or not i can i can i can see where it and and for some people perhaps there are members of the congregation that are still happy to just tune in uh, or other congregations, right? I was at synagogue this weekend and there's still people who, you know, for health reasons, for fear, for anxiety, for distance, whatever, like they're still, they still got a video camera in the back, um, but the house was packed. So, yeah. So, you know, you, you and your book, you write about, and, and for the record in, uh, in David's newest book, The Future's Analog, he breaks it down in seven sort of big sections. I hesitate to call them chapters because they're really big, but we'll call them chapters for fun. It just by one day of the week, which uh, I thought was a really cool and, and unique way to do that. And so you, you have a chapter on um, on uh, religion and, and sort of, I think you the call Sabbath, it the soul. The Sabbath in a way. Did you call yeah. it Sabbath? Did you call it Sabbath? Well, it's, I think it was called soul, but yeah. It's, yeah. So it's on, on, on Sabbath rest and, and what it yeah. looks like. And um, so, but one of the other things that you talked about was just relationships. I think you have one, you talk about family encounters. And so like my, my most, I had several depressing experiences during the pandemic. I think we all did, but there, there are a few that stand out. So one of the things that took place in my personal, in my family personally is when the pandemic hit, there was for a few weeks, man, there was this breath of, of fresh air. And I, I, that sounds a little bit um, selfish. It sounds like you kind of had it too. You ran up to the, to your lake house or, or whatever, your mother-in-law's lake house. And you guys were able just to, it's like an extended vacation for, for a minute. If you could forget everything else going on around you. Right. Um, so we we had just a few months prior to March of 2020 moved into a new home, uh, big, you know, spacious home that our kids could spread out in. We had this nice neighborhood, porches, I mean, all the, the whole nine yards, places to ride bikes. So, I mean, the world shut down and and uh, all of our spring sports quit. So, you know, all the baseball ended, uh, uh, yeah, all the God. track ended, <laughs> all the volleyball ended. 
you know, e- even like the the extracurricular sort of church activities ended, yeah. and we went from having something blank five slate. Or six nights blank a week, blank slate, nothing. Oh God, you know? I'm like how many more hours will I have to take my kids to Hebrew school and Taekwondo today? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, and, and so we went to nothing. My my yeah. wife and I were walking four or five miles a day together. We we put yeah. in a home gym. Like I'm lifting people were, all the time. People were like whittling wood, right? Like it was. It really went back to this like Henry Henry Thoreau. Kind yeah, of I mean my, idyllic. Like my boys and I fished constantly. Yeah. I fished. Yeah, didn't I mean catch, I've got did literally didn't catch a single fish. Stop. But my son and I were like casting every day. I mean that's. You know, we, we got this little pond in our neighborhood and, and uh, yeah. your neighbors let us borrow a little boat. And I mean, we we fished. I mean, we, we, we had in some. So in some ways we had a ball. Right. There were aspects yeah. of it that were wonderful. But um, in May of 2020, somewhere around about May the 10th, we had a birthday party for my youngest son. Um, well, for both my boys, my boys birthdays are only three days apart. And we had a birthday party for my boys and we invited the entire family. And uh, we invited the entire family to participate in this this birthday party via zoom. And so my wife ordered these cakes and had them delivered to everybody's house. And like, she did it upright. And, uh, you know, we had candles and we had all the things and it was the most depressing experience of my life, you know? So my boys are, we, our family spread out over, you know, just separated by by a few hours. And, but generally a few times a year, we get together, celebrate birthdays together and things like that. And my boys are used to getting, you know, a hug or a birthday spanking or thrown in a pool or anything. And instead, you know, we all kind of sat around, stared at the zoom for like six minutes. And then we're like, man, this is terrible. We cut it off and went on about our business. How, how much did we miss when we reduced our our family and friendship, family relationships and friendships to the digital world. How do you quantify that? Right. How do you quantify that? Like, who do you know that's still doing that shit? That's, you know, I, I, whenever I give talks and I gave two this week and and I always say the same thing. I was like, if I, if I were to pay you $25, would you attend a one hour long zoom cocktail party? Nobody raises their hands. And I say $50 and like one person slowly raises their hands. So like a hundred dollars and like two people raise their hands and like three others will be like, oh, okay. okay. Like I'm how long gonna... do I have to stay? Yeah. 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 Like, all right. Like the mental math of like, uh, okay. Okay. A hundred dollars will buy me like something like real cocktails at a real cocktail party at another time. Therefore, you know, this calculation works out. Right. Um, like it's, I, I don't know anyone who does that stuff anymore. Right. Um, uh, it's just, it's, you know, it was, it was a foxhole moment. Um, this was, you know, like, like we, this was something we did in order to survive. And, um, and that was, it was necessary at the moment, but as a proxy for what we wanted in the future, it was very clear instantaneously that this was not, going to be the way that we were going to live going forward. That was sort of resoundingly clear. And I think, again, the struggle with work is an economic one. It's one about the way we built our world and lifestyle and the the value of work. But when it comes to things like spirituality, when it comes to things like family, conversations, friendships, socialization, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, the jury is, is out and it is, the verdict is unanimous. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, we 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 can look back at at the pandemic, um, and you know, was some of it overblown? Sure. Was some of it underblown? Absolutely. You know, I mean, 
Um, and Hi, uh, hindsight is a yeah, uh, exactly. so it's a wonderful, wonderful tool. Who and knows and then we and so many people were impacted by so many different ways. Like we yeah. we've uh, had some folks that have come like not too long ago. I had somebody come to our church. Uh, they've moved from moved in here from out of state somewhere, and, and it's interesting. We live in the South where we you know we value the Constitution, and um, uh, so we, we're seeing this this influx of people from honestly from from other states um that are that are coming to places where they feel like they 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 at least have share some ideological values they don't share in other places which is interesting but um so we, we've had some people come in whether they joined our church or visit our church or moved into our community from uh maybe like um i don't know maybe, maybe upstate new york or something like that where where the lockdown experience was much more draconian right there was so many more expectations like mm-hmm. like you were talking about in your book you talked about watching the caution tape come down from the the playground yeah i mean canada makes up state new york look um i, I mean like, like south carolina <laughs> right and 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 so you know, but but they'll come in and they go, you know, we, we didn't know anybody that was impacted by this. It was just overblown. And I'm I have to look at them and say, you know, I, I can name a handful of people that I know personally who died from this. Yeah. And I, know, I, I think I, that's you know, I, I, that, I, 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 I would yeah, I've seen I the, you know, I've seen I've seen 30 year olds on ventilators, right? I mean, this yeah. is like and, and and so so many people had such a different experience of it. Um so, you know, we can dig into some of it. Hindsight's going to be 2020, but here's what we can, we, we have to do without a shadow of a doubt. We have to learn from it. We we right. have to see that year as a learning experience. And, and some of the things that we're learning is that we can't replace real relationships with anything other than relationships. You know, um, mm. we, um, uh, the the other the other other than the birthday party the other sort of relational thing for me that stands out my my wife and I we do Christmas big I love Christmas I'm sorry that you're a Jew um, I mean it's I mean I'm just being honest like it's 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 you know Hanukkah I guess that's fine whatever but Christmas I mean we we do it big and we 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 have lots of people over um, you know we we have uh, we we invite our church body drops in drop ins we have party you know parties for teenagers because we have kids and we have just like a house full we have you know these week couple of weeks around christmas where all we do is clean house and then clean up behind the people who are there and buy more food and cook more food and it's just over and over and so every year leading up we we look at one another at some point and go, is, is it worth all that like should we be doing this because i mean we're just exhausted and i remember sitting there looking at her we're watching you know the the whatever classic Christmas movie we'd never seen before. We're watching it, you know, one night, December, the like 16th or 18th or something. And there's nobody in our house. There's not been anybody in our house. And it's just us to enjoy our Christmas tree and our kids. And I looked at her and I said, you know what? This is, this is the most laid back Christmas we've ever had. And it's miserable. I, it's absolutely worth it. I'm, I'm willing. You talked about this in the book with your, your book party, right? Or, or not book party, your, um, your book club, huh? well, uh, all the yeah. work you put into putting it together. And it was so much oh, easier no. on zoom, but it was just terrible. I mean, we did the, our equivalent um, uh, is, you know, we would throw a big Hanukkah party in our house every year and our house is not, it's a downtown Toronto townhouse. Like it's, I don't know. 1200 square feet it's small we would invite started with the street and then it was just like anyone and like just food everywhere it was kind of like a bring your own you know potlucky thing and just chaos like three days of setting up two days of cleaning up destruction of property and um and people were like throughout the pandemic like every december you know it was like 
when's that party coming back? What's happening with the party? What's, you know, are you doing the party again this year? What do you think? Is it time? Is it going to happen? Blah, 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 blah. And, um, and we were like, oh, oh God, we're still cleaning up for the last one, even though it's three years later. Um, and so hopefully this year, um, will be the, the return of this, um, thing. Uh, but you know, it's like, it's, that's the, that's the everything, right? That's that, that joy that you feel in those moments, of course, on a logical level, if you were to be like, Craig, we're going to look at this logically. Here's the budget that you spent on like tinsel this year. And here's the amount of eggnog, you know, your eggnog budget is, you know, like I'm your accountant, right? It's like your eggnog expenses are, are vastly more than the eggnog income you've made. Um, and, and, you know, like the amount of cleaning you've done, the amount of like paper towels and, blah, 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 and like think of the hours you've done this, blah, 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 blah. like logically this Christmas party doesn't make sense from a work perspective. And, and you're like, it's not economics. It's joy. It's life. It's like the the things that take the most effort and make the biggest mess are going to be the things that, of course, are going to be the most enjoyable and the most fun. Um, and if we just did the thing that was easy and most convenient for ourselves, then the extreme of that is like, yeah, you sit inside, you do your Zoom cocktail parties, you you watch, you know, a Christmas story for the twentieth time alone. Um, with like a Swanson TV dinner. Uh, and you make it sound really horrible. Yeah. And I, I, we, we went to our friend's, uh, Christmas dinner this year and they like, they went out and bought like really fancy Christmas crackers and, um, you know, made like a roast beef and it was just like to the nth degree. Right. Um, uh, and it was it was like, this is it. This is an irreplicable thing. This is a memory I'm going to have. My kids are going to have the memory of this dinner, just like they'll have the memory of that party, just have like, the memory of the birthday party, right? Like these are the things that give us meaning in a day-to-day way, whether it's secular or religious, like friends, meals, encounters, being out in nature, a walk, uh, a coffee that you have in a friend in the morning. Like, this is it. This is the essence of life. This is what it's for, right? Um, you know, shoot for the afterlife, but like in the day-to-day, this is it. And and David, Will, I've taken a ton of your time and uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation. I'm almost like a fanboy. I mean, I really enjoyed your books <laughs> that much. I gotta be honest, man. I really did. Um, but um, just to finish up right here, one of the big things that you talk about in the book that I just loved was how conversation is sort of what makes all of life okay and makes it work, right? Um, and that's what we're doing right here. You know, we're doing it digitally, of course, but how valuable um, are those, uh, and, and I mean, right now, I mean, you, you're in Toronto, so I don't know if you see it, but just yesterday, Surgeon General of the United States comes out and says, hey, this loneliness pandemic is real. It's one of the worst things we're facing right now. People don't yeah. talk to anybody. They don't have these encounters. Um, how, how valuable, because you point out in the book that we plan a Zoom meeting, right? You, you attend a Zoom meeting, you set it up, but these conversations take place in sidewalks and coffee shops, um, and in the margins, I talk about this in my podcast, the margins of our everyday life, mm-hmm. how valuable are these, um, these analog experiences to just creating conversations that can have meaningful and long-term impact? It's, it's the glue that holds our society together. It's the glue that holds humanity together, right? It's, it's those conversations that we have throughout the day, throughout our lives, um, big ones, little ones, 
casual, how are you or have a nice days and, you know, we need to have a talk and this is a, a meaningful thing. I mean, that's, that's everything. And um, yes, you can communicate online. You can have conversations on zoom. You can have text messages. You can speak on social media, but it's, it's, it's always going to be at its fullest bandwidth and its biggest power when it's, when it's face to face with someone. Um, what the surgeon general said is, is, is true. The, the epidemic of loneliness of isolate social isolation in the US and in the Western world and increasingly in the developing world is a real and growing thing. Um, it's seen as the sort of leading meta cause of all sorts of other epidemics, the the substance abuse epidemic, the opioid epidemic, um, rise in in, you know, violence, suicide, um, <clears throat> you name it. Even, even they've 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 linked it to uh, a leading indicator of um, unrelated or seemingly unrelated health problems. So if if someone is more isolated socially and more lonely, they have a higher uh, preponderance of heart disease, diabetes, uh, risk from from even accidents like accidental death and so forth. Uh, and, and so this is a real, real thing. And uh, digital technology is not the cause of it necessarily, but it it certainly is a factor, right? Uh, the ability, the fact that we can sit inside and watch screens and isolate ourselves from other human beings all day um, and get by just fine. We can have everything we need delivered to us. We can communicate with people, whether it's for work or for some sort of quote unquote socialization. Um, uh, we can attend our church services, but you know, I think. The thing is like when someone comes into your service on a Sunday and they're sitting there and maybe they're alone and they're quiet and maybe they lost someone or maybe they moved from an out of state, um, uh, you know, there is that moment, those spaces where after the service, there's the coffee, there's a luncheon, maybe there's um, somebody saying, hey, you know, uh, happy Sunday or how are you or what's going on or what's your name, right? Like there are those moments that open up, which you just don't get online. Um, yeah, digital technology is not necessarily the cause any more than turkey sandwiches are the cause of obesity, right? Definitely uh, not I, turkey. I mean, well, but hold on, but, but, but roast watch. beef, perhaps. I listened I listen to, I listen to Shaq do a, an interview with Dan Patrick um, a couple of years back. And he talked about, he had reached, you know, at some point he's taught, lost a bunch of weight, but he'd gotten over 400 pounds. And they were like, man, I, how did you get over 400 pounds? Like, what, what were you doing? He said, turkey sandwiches. He said, what kind of like, like, like these are like, like sub subway sandwiches. He goes, no, I mean, just, just turkey sandwiches. I mean, I, I come home, you know, especially you know, late Book night. Turkey. I'd come the home. Entire I'd, turkey between two loaves. He of bread. said, I'd make, I'd make four, five, six turkey sandwiches. I sit down and eat four, five, six turkey sandwiches. Right? Well, turkey sandwiches, you go to turkey sandwich. I never made anybody fat. But if you eat six of them, you know, the, the, the midnight, it turns out it, you get over four hundred pounds before it's over with. God bless but, Shaq. Right. I mean, I'm so grateful for him. Right. I mean, what a guy. But, but uh, you know, so there's your next book: How Shaq Got Overweight. The Shaq diet. Yeah, the Shaq <laughs> diet. But, you know, so we can argue that, and some people would, I mean, probably more than you and I would, that, that digital technology is not necessarily the bad thing, right? But but you eat six six digital, six Zoom videos a night or, or, you know, six hours of YouTube, and all of a sudden you're incredibly lonely, even though you've been exposed to the world. All right, or you're I, on, you spend your day on Twitter conversing with other uh, people or on, we, or we on, or on Facebook. And I'm not even talking about arguing, hour. just like, 
you spend your time on social media and yet you're sitting there alone. Right? Right. And we see this, you can see this anywhere. You can see mm. it in an airport. You can see it in a school. People, you know, maybe before the church service starts, people just sitting there, you know, quote unquote, socializing with other people, but actually ignoring the people. I, I was at a, a chorus concert last night for my daughter. And um, I just, I watched, I watched somebody watching YouTube videos or some kind of video, I don't know, YouTube, but during the concert, what are you doing? Like these kids are doing a phenomenal job. It was actually a wonderful concert. Anyway, all right, look, look, we got to go. I know that. So uh, that's that's another Southern idiom. Uh, we got to uh, no no proper grammar. No S, no gots. Nothing, no? nothing. Oh, okay. So, but I, I want to give you two things, two opportunities before we leave. Number one, um, your favorite thing out of either the Revenge of Analog or the Future is Analog. Fa- favorite thing that you you learned out of either one of those books that you think that somebody that's interested in one of those books needs to know about. Oh, interesting, interesting. Um, my favorite thing I think is uh, it is the part about you know it, there's a section of the book that's that's uh, this gentleman Which named book? Larry. Um, both books actually. Okay, he's the only person I quote in both books. His name's Larry Cuban. He's a professor of education and technology and sort of the history of them at Stanford. And he was the the most eye opening person I spoke with um, around this notion of education because he really puts it in. The, the simplest terms about the way that education is actually a relationship. And uh, if you can read one thing about it to understand in any sort of context, why digital is no substitute for sort of in-person learning, that would be, that would be it. Larry. Cuban. He's he's the guy that says, because education really is nothing but relationships. I'm, yeah. I'm simplifying. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Exactly. It's excellent. Yeah. It's great. I, I'll be honest with you. That was that man that jumped off the page at me because when I read yeah. it, I said, you know, he's right. My God! Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't remember, I don't remember much calculus, but I still tell <sighs> stories about my calculus teacher, right? right? And I the mean, class, and and yeah. and the and the things you do remember, the things you do care about. I'm sure your religious studies teacher, your Sunday school teacher was was that was a obviously a, a fundamentally um, a meaningful experience, and it may not have just been the information. Is there so anyway the relationships? That's anyway. yeah. Anyway, okay. Number two, or yes. lastly, um, yes. I'm hoping that people that hear this benefit from our conversation, but you're hoping, and I do too, they go and buy your books. So um, where they can they learn like more about you? Uh, where might they find your books? Uh, the books are sold uh, wherever finder books are sold. Uh, I'm sure in North Carolina and uh, in all other 50 states and other territories, there is a This is independent... South Carolina, David. Be South careful. Carolina. If they sell but it also in, in the, the North, state also... of North Carolina. But... Is, it, is it now? I guess yeah. uh, they did have a Democratic yeah, uh, um, uh, uh, in, in, in all States, there has been a wonderful resurgence of independent bookstores, which is something mm-hmm. I wrote about in Revenge of Analog. Um, so the first place I would go is your, your local independent bookstore. Uh, if not, you can order the book from bookshop.org, which orders and supports independent bookstores. And if not the other place that you can get books from really easily, the library, always great. Go support your local public library. There's no greater institution, um, in the world that supports people, meeting ideas, you know, it's, 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 it's the best great place to take your kids, um, on a rainy day. And then you have a website. I have a website. Yeah. Um, sax.com, right. People, people always, or what is it? Saxdavid.com. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you have a website. I'm like, Oh, that right. Yeah. I should probably update that. 
Uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate it when I got David Sachs is a 20 year old. Yeah. I, 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 lo- I loved that your website is like, hey, if you want to leave raving reviews of the books, please send me an email. If yeah. you want anything else, here's my publisher. <laughs> yeah. Like, I sure. Yeah. You great. You got questions? Let me know. Like, here's, so, you know, uh, here's you can hire me to go speak. Any um, any last word before we shut shut this thing down? Uh, yeah, thank you. you. Yeah. It's, a, it's, um, it's a pleasure. Um, I hope you, uh, thank you for taking an interest in it and um, for taking the time to to chat with me about it. I really appreciate it. Well, David, I appreciate it. I, I don't think that, um, you know, we, we can really be fully human unless we experience the full analog experiences. We've seen that in our church. I know a lot of people have seen it in their own churches. And of course, we've seen it in our culture as well. So David Sachs, thank you for being with me on this episode of the Ordinary Christian Podcast. If you enjoyed this, go buy David's books um, or, uh, hey, leave us a, a good review, share it with somebody. We'd really appreciate that. Help us to get the word out. We think that uh, this is a great way for us to communicate this digitally, but uh, we also know that this would be a lot better if we could have shared a cup of coffee because there's just a whole lot to be said for experiencing this world together. Thank you so Amen. Much. Thank have you, Craig. Great, All right. Take week. care. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Ordinary Christian Podcast. I hope that you will use the information in this podcast to encourage you to love Jesus in the ordinary aspects of your daily life. Jesus surrounded himself with very ordinary people who made a difference in the world because of their Savior. You can make a difference too. If you would like to read more of my writings or find other podcasts, you can find information about me on my website at www.craigthompson.org. For information about Malvern Hill Baptist Church and sermons from our church, you can go to our website at www.malvernhill.org. Until next time, use the ordinary margins of your life to make an extraordinary difference in the world around you.